Welcome to another inspirational message from Dave Koop, Senior Pastor of Coastal Church in Vancouver, Canada. Let's take a moment to, to pray. We're going to get into God's Word this morning. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we would love the Lord to speak to us this morning through His Word and make it alive for each one of us. So let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank you today for your word. It is living. It's alive. It's unlike any other book. And today we ask that your word would be living, alive, that the Holy Spirit would be here to teach us. He is the great teacher. You know what we need, and what we need might be really different than what the person next to us needs or somebody else that is not with us here today might need. Lord, speak to our hearts today. Show us what we need to take home and apply into our lives We didn't come, Lord, to fill out a report card. We didn't come to critique this thing. We came to say, Lord, speak to me. So right now, we come to you and we say, Lord, speak into our lives. Change us, that we might be a reflection of you, that we might be salt, that we might be light in a world that really needs to see the love of God displayed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here with us last week, you know that we talked about salt and light Remember, you said to your neighbor, you are salt, and you said to your neighbor, you are light. Probably went out this past week, had had opportunity to be salt or to be light. Our world needs a little more salt, a pinch of salt here and a pinch of salt there to make a difference, to bring some flavor, to cause people to thirst for God. And I came across an article that was sent by Peter Lake. He has a little emailing list. He sends out inspirational stories and quotes from time to time, and He'd sent this out, and I thought it was a great example of being salt and being light. And it was from his friend in Victoria, a guy by the name of Mal Cooper, and he he sent this out. So I'm going to pass on this story to you this morning because it's a really simple example of being salt and being light. It happened on a plane. If you've ever flown, which most of you have, you usually have an opportunity to be salt and to be light. There's usually a chance to exercise a God kind of love in a lineup or somewhere. Your patience is tested, and you have a chance to reflect the love of God in that uh, scenario. So here's this story. It came from Mel Cooper, and he, I'll pass on what Peter Lake had passed on in his email. He said, Mel writes, I put my carry-on in the luggage compartment, sat down in my assigned seat. It was going to be a long flight, and I was glad to have a good book to read. Perhaps I'll get a short nap, I thought. Just before takeoff, a line of soldiers came down the aisle, filled all the vacant seats, totally surrounded me. I started a conversation. Where are you headed? I asked the soldier seated nearest to me. Petawawa, we'll be there for two weeks for special training, and they were being deployed to Afghanistan. After flying for about an hour, an announcement was made that sack lunches were available for $5. It would be several hours before we reached the east, and I quickly decided lunch would help pass the time. As I reached for my wallet, I overheard a soldier ask his buddy if he planned to buy lunch. No, that seems like a lot of money for just a sack lunch. Probably wouldn't be worth 5 bucks. I'll wait till we get to base. His friend agreed. I looked around at the other soldiers. None were buying lunch. I walked to the back of the plane, handed the flight attendant a $50 bill. Take a lunch to all these soldiers. She grabbed my arm, squeezed it tightly. Her eyes felt wet with tears. She thanked me. My son was a soldier in Iraq. It's almost like you're doing it for him. Picking up 10 sacks, she she headed up the aisle where the soldiers were seated. She stopped at my seat and asked, which do you like best, beef or chicken? Chicken, I replied, wondering why she asked. She turned and went to the front of the plane, returning a minute later with a dinner plate from first class. This is your thanks. After we finished eating, I went again to the back of the plane, heading for the restroom. A man stopped me. I saw what you did. I want to be part of it. Here, take this. He handed me $25. 
Soon after I returned to my seat, I saw the flight captain coming down the aisle, look at the aisle numbers as he walked. I hoped he was not looking for me, but he noticed he was looking at the numbers only on my side of the plane. When he got to my row, he stopped, smiled, held out his hand and said, I want to shake your hand. Quickly unfastening my seatbelt, I stood up, took the captain's hand with a booming voice. He said, I was a soldier. I was a military pilot. Once somebody bought me a lunch. It was an act of kindness I've never forgotten. I was embarrassed when applause was heard from all the passengers. Later, I walked to the front of the plane so I could stretch my legs. A man who was seated about six rows in front of me reached out his hand, wanted to shake mine. He left another $25 in my palm. When we landed, I gathered my belongings, started to decline. The plane, waiting just inside the airplane door, was a man who stopped me, put something in my shirt pocket, turned around and walked away without saying a word, another $25. Upon entering the terminal, I saw the soldiers gathering for the trip to the base. I walked over to them, handed them $75. It'll take you some time to reach the base. It'll be about time for a sandwich. God bless you. Ten young men left that flight, feeling the love and respect of their fellow travelers. As I walked briskly to my car, I whispered a prayer for their safe return. These soldiers were giving their all for our country. I could only give them a couple of meals. It seems so little. A veteran is someone who, at some point in his life, wrote a blank check made payable to Canada for an amount of up to and including my life. This is honor, and there are way, and there are way too many people in this country who no longer understand it. That's a great example of how we can be salt and light in the world today. The world's thirsty for it. Really, they're, they're looking for that type of uh, lifestyle. And Jesus was explaining that when he gave us his message on the mount. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 5. Of course, Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. I hope as we go through it this summer that we become really familiar with this classic passage from our Lord. If somebody asks you, can you just distill what Jesus said? Do you have a summary of Jesus' teachings? Then you can say, yeah, go to Matthew. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Sometimes people will get a Bible and say, well, where do I start reading? You could turn and say, hey, just try Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's a great place to start when you're reading. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 17 to verse number uh, 37 this morning. Now, we can't kind of unpack and drill down deep on all of it, but we'll cover some of the highlights as we go through it. I hope you go home and meditate on it, chew on it, read over it. We'll also talk about it perhaps in some of our life groups. So let's go. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus, do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He starts off by saying to them, I didn't come to destroy the law. I'm going to say some things to you today. He says, but I didn't want to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. For when he was a boy... He kept every single bit of the law, every word this our Lord kept. And he's saying to them, I didn't come to destroy it, I, I came to fulfill it. And he says, he goes on to say in verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Scribes and Pharisees had a way of taking the law and using it to their advantage. And he goes through these different quotes from the law and he has to explain what God meant by it. And so the first one is, he takes the sixth commandment, which I know you all know off by heart, the sixth commandment, because we know the commandments by memory, right? So, but anyhow, he starts with the sixth commandment, which was, you shall not murder. And uh, he's addressing the heart issues. So we're going to take three this morning, three heart issues. And he's more interested in what's going on in the heart. 
So the first one was you should murder. Now, let's listen to see how the Lord addresses it. It's really an issue of anger, not murder. So if you want to fill in the blank in your notes, the danger of anger is the first blank that you want to put in there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, it's there in your notes. You've heard the law of Moses said, do not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say... But I say, if you're angry with someone. Now, when we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount here, especially the rest of this chapter, he'll say, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And we could list a bunch of things where you've heard it said today. If it was Jesus here doing the Sermon on Grouse Mountain, what would he say today? You've heard it said, but I say. Last night in the service, we came up with some, you've heard it said in the year 2010, how would Jesus respond? Here's some that we talked about. Uh, you've heard it said, here's one that came up, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You've heard it said. But I say to you, no, 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 what happens in Vegas will come back with you. The STDs will come back with you. <laughs> the demons will come back with you. The guilt and shame will come back with you. Oh, your friends might not know, but guess what? Yeah, it won't stay in Vegas. It'll come back with you. Or you've heard it said, ignorance is bliss. But I say to you, people perish for lack of knowledge. Ignorance is not bliss. You've heard it said, money corrupts. But I say to you, it is a love of money that corrupts. You've heard it said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Jesus would say, but I say to you, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can have somebody throw a rock at you, hit you with a stick, and you'll get over that in a week. But if somebody has said a cutting word, hurt your soul, hurt your heart, you can carry that hurt for the rest of your life unless the Lord heals it. A coach, a a parent, an uncle, a relative, a friend, if they've hurt your heart, you can carry that with you the rest of your life. So I don't know what all Jesus would say if he was here today. You've heard it said. Uh, Some of the others we came up with was... um, What you see is what you get. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, What you don't know won't hurt you. So we had a number of these going last night. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Sometimes you need to stop and really listen to what we're saying. And what, what, what does this really mean? So he's doing that here. You've heard it said, the commandment. You know it. They've taught it. You shall not murder. But I'm saying to you. Now listen to what he says to him. But I say to you, back to our notes. Chapter Matthew 5, verse 22. But I say to you, if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the high council. And if you curse someone, you're in the danger of fires of hell. So the danger is the anger, not the murder. What they were doing was this. The commandment was, don't murder. Okay, very good. Well, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be ticked off. I'm going to call you an idiot. I'm going, to, I'm going to have this vile heart. But since I didn't murder you, I didn't do anything wrong. Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing the point. God's much more interested in the heart, the attitude that produced the murder. I'm going to go to the headwaters of this, and we're going to change it there. As we go through Matthew 5, understand this is Jesus the shepherd speaking to the people. He loves him. He has great compassion on them. What he doesn't want to see is their lives destroyed by anger. He doesn't want to see their lives destroyed by lust. He doesn't want to see their lives destroyed by broken words. He's he's loving the people. This isn't any way punitive. His message is preventative. His message is to lead them into the abundant life. He says, I want to welcome you into the kingdom. The kingdom is an amazing life. This kingdom of heaven that you can experience here on earth. I want you to enjoy that. But to enjoy it... Understand what it is. Anger has to be dealt with. 
Usually what comes up when we talk about anger, we've done different messages on anger. People say, well, Jesus got angry. There is a place for righteous anger. And righteous anger is never selfish, always under control, arrives slowly, and always leads to a change of injustice. So there is a place. Some things should cause a righteous anger. He's referring here to a a selfish, destructive anger that leads to broken, torn, wrecked relationships and eventually murder. Now, verse 23 to 24, obviously connected to the prior verses, it starts with the word so in your notes. Some translations have the word therefore, so these thoughts are connected. So he says to them, anger is the issue. And if you're angry, you're in danger of judgment. If not here on this earth, when you stand before the Lord, you're in danger of judgment. So he's addressing the root of the issue. Then he says, so, so they're connected. If you're standing before the altar in the temple, offering a sacrifice to God, and suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there beside the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. There's a note of urgency here. So you've come to church, you got your offering, you're going to sing, you're going to worship God, and as you begin to sing, God has a way of shining light on our lives when we're in church. Have you noticed that? You come to church, you begin to worship, all of a sudden, ooh, we, one of the songs we sang was, clean, put up a clean heart in me, Lord. God begins to deal with stuff, and we, we, sometimes tears come, and we begin to recognize, oh, there's this or that in my life. And he's saying, if you're there, and you're in the temple, you're worshiping God, and all of a sudden you remember that your brother has something against you. Not you having something against your brother, you remember someone has something against you. What should you do? Well, normally what we would do is like, well, if they got something against me, come talk to me about it. They know my number. They got my email. Then come talk to me. Text me. Talk to me. Let's deal with it. But he said, no, no. The responsibility is yours. You must take the initiative for reconciliation. You need to go to them and do that before you come and worship. Reconciliation, understand, is very, very important to God. He wants reconciliation to take place before we worship. Why? Because we were reconciled unto God through Christ. He made a reconciliation for us. And if our attitude is such that, well, I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to reconcile them. I'm not going to make an effort to make it right. But then I want to come and worship a God who reconciled my sins so that I could have a relationship with God. God has a problem with that. He's saying, first go and get that reconciliation taking place. Make every effort to make it right. Now, sometimes you, somebody will have something against you, and you go to reconcile with them, and all you can do is apologize, say you're sorry, but they don't make any effort to receive it. You've done your part. That's all you can do. You can't make somebody not have something against you. But if you go to them and say, I'm sorry, I want to make it up, what can I do? Then you've done your part. The ball's in their court, so to speak. Sometimes you'll go to somebody and say, no, everything's cool. That's fine. But he's asking us here, to be preventative. If we do this, anger doesn't have a chance to get rooted. It keeps our lives from getting stinky. It keeps it from getting rotted. It keeps that thing from festering in our lives. Jesus was teaching that the sixth commandment deals more with, with more than the physical act of murder. He traces it to the source, which is anger. You know that you could have Character assassination, you didn't murder the person, but you can really destroy a person with your words and with your anger. And this is what the Lord was challenging us on. This is the stuff we need to live by. 
This is what makes us salty, what, what makes us light, what makes us to be a reflection of Jesus. The second thing in our heart that we have to be careful of is the danger of lust. He moves on to that after talking about anger. Is this still applicable in the year 2010? Do we still have anger issues today? Does anybody have an anger issue in your family, in your workplace? Does anybody else deal with that? I think it still applies in the year 2010. Does lust still apply in the year 2010? I think so. We're, we're battling it today just like we were then. So the danger is lust, not adultery. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says, You've heard it said that the law of Moses says, Do not commit adultery. But I say... Anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, he's going to the source. Adultery just doesn't happen. Adultery happened a long time, long started earlier as a seed form with lust. And it ends up with the act of adultery. From there, he goes into marriage. He's saying that if this happens, marriages break down, families break down. When families break down, society breaks down. So he's dealing with this issue of lust. I was, came across an article not too long ago, it came out I think in May, where Steve Jobs says, no porn for iPhone or iPad apps. And this is what he said, Steve Jobs from Mac. He said, we do believe we have a moral responsibility to keep porn off the iPhone. We know there's a porn store for Android. You can download nothing but porn. You can download porn. Your kids can download porn. That's a place we don't want to go. So we're not going to go there. In a response to a heated email from Gawker's media, Ryan Tate, Steve Jobs remained resolute on his no-porn policy for iPhones and iPads. Tate's Valley Way column on Gawker.com stated, I didn't plan to pick a fight with Steve Jobs last night. It just sort of happened. An iPad advertisement ticked me off. I sent an email to the CEO. Tate asked him, what about Bob Dylan? If he was 20, what would he think about a company? Wouldn't he think that iPad has... Has anything to do with revolution? Jobs replied. Catch his reply. Yep, freedom from programs that steal your private data. Freedom from programs that trash your battery. Freedom from porn. Yep, freedom. The times are changing, and some traditional PC folks feel their world is slipping away. Now, I understand there's other programs on a PC that will do it as well, but I really admire Steve Jobs for standing up and saying, we're not putting porn on the iPhone. We're not putting porn on the iPad. This is a business of saying, no, we're not going to go there. That's amazing. And when he got flack for it, say, hey, we want freedom, we want to have it, he said, no, this is a new freedom. Freedom from having it. Freedom from being attacked with it. We're not going to have it. Good for him. Taking it on. That's a bold stand. What kind of computer do you think the schools... It might be a good marketing plan. What kind of computer do you think the schools are going to buy? Yeah, this is a good plan. The world's getting tired of it because they see what's happened, how it breaks down families, how it breaks down society, and people are starting to stand up with it. The problem with lust is that it's a downward spiral. The problem with lust is that it's never satisfied, and it leads only to further perversion. What we battle today in Canada, we didn't have that 15 years ago. We didn't have that 20 years ago. It's downward. What you see today, you didn't see 15 years ago. You didn't see 10 years ago. I want to remind you, though, that when it gets dark, it's darker. The light gets lighter. If you struggle in this area, we're going to have a series of messages in September on traps. Every Sunday, we're going to have a different trap. We'll talk about different traps and how the enemy tries to trap you. The Bible says, don't be ignorant of his devices. So we're going to 
tick him off really bad in September, and we're going to tell you all his traps, how he does stuff, and we're going to expose him. Every week will be a different trap. And during that series, we'll talk about pornography and how it traps people and the destructive forces of it. They did a survey of Christian homes recently, and in this survey, they found that 47% of Christian homes said that it was destroying their home, their lives. I don't know how many families you sat down with a husband and wife, and their marriage is over or badly beat up because of lust, because of pornography. 65% of the pornography sites are visited by men. 35 are visited by women. It's a 10 to $12 billion a year industry. They say it makes more money than any NBA, NFL, and professional baseball combined. A lot of money in it. And it's destroying homes. It's everywhere we look. And Jesus was saying, be careful about lust. It's selfish. It, it's consuming. It's all about me. It's not love. And it will destroy your lives. And it leads to adultery or some other type of perversion. There was a magazine that, or a little pamphlet that came to us recently from Family Action here in Canada. And they are, they're asking for help in child pornography. Uh, they write, child pornography is not harmless entertainment, as users, distributors, and some civil rights groups claim. Here are the facts from Canada. Talk about a downward spiral and lust becoming more and more perverted. 80% of the confirmed reports of child pornography in Canada pertain to children under the age of 8 years old. This is according to the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Another fact is charges in Canada for production or distribution of child pornography increased, listen to this, this is our country, by 900% between 1998 and 2003. That's according to the Office of the Federal Ombudsman for Victims of Crime. The victims are getting younger. 39% of pedophiles arrested for Internet child pornography have images of 3- to 5-year-old children. 83% have images of 6- to 12-year-olds. 21% depict violence such as rape and torture, rape and torture of three- and five-year-old children. What's left? And so the Lord says lust leads to destruction of marriages, leads to destruction of families. It's a Sermon on the Mount. He's not being punitive. He's being preventative. He said this will wreck your homes, will wreck your family, will wreck your country, will wreck your society. This is Sermon on the Mount. I know it's not light stuff this morning. But this is how we're salt and light when we say, no, 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 not going to go there. What do I do with it? When we get into September, we'll give you some practical teaching on how to battle pornography, how to battle this stuff. Because obviously, it's, it's here in the room this morning. Obviously, there's people here this morning that are battling it. How do we battle it? One is what you think on. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, think on these things. Just, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, and deserving of praise. One of the greatest ways to battle it is you, it's not so much trying not to think on something, it's rather thinking on something else. It's the leave and cleave principle where you place something with something good. If I had a cup of dark coffee here and I put it on the table, had a big jug of clear water, and I began to pour it into that dark coffee, eventually that dark coffee is displaced and you have clear water. You begin to pour God's word into your mind. It displaces the darkness. That's one great strategy. We'll talk about that. Another great strategy is get accountable. There are great tools and websites today that will help you. There's one called XXX Church. They're great 
tool to help you. There's another one called Covenant Eyes to help you keep accountable so that you don't get trapped in this. Uh, there's also the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'll send you a helper. He's really for us. He's not mad at us. He's not, he's not surprised. He's not like, oh, I can't believe you guys did that. I can't believe you fell for that. I'm so shocked they, that happened to you. He's not surprised. He's, he's compassionate. He says, here, let me give you the tools to help you. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 says, but by the Spirit you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Holy Spirit comes along and helps us. He wants you to live in victory. And he's saying, be careful, careful about lust, because it will destroy your life. It will destroy my life. We've got to be careful. We live in a day and age where we really have to be on guard, because it will come in, sneak up, and destroy us. Again, he's not being punitive. He's trying to be preventative, encourage them how to live out their life in the kingdom. This is kingdom living. Kingdom living. Look what he says as he goes on here. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now please understand this is just an illustration, okay? Don't go home tonight and pluck out your eye or cut your hand off because we'd have a lot of... People here next Sunday with hands and eyes, and that's not the point that he's trying to say. It's, a, it's an illustration for us. What he's saying is if the occasion causes you to stumble, don't do that occasion. Or if that place causes you to stumble, or if this thing causes you to stumble, cut it off. Get rid of it. If, you have, uh, uh, if cable TV causes you to stumble, cut off the cable. If your Sports Illustrated... Subscription causes you to stumble when the swimsuit edition arrives, then cancel the subscription. If your internet site needs some changes, then change your internet. Now, what causes you to stumble may not cause the next person to stumble. The other person may have cable TV and doesn't face it, but for you, maybe to be a hindrance. But he says, whatever causes you to stumble, what's your issue? What's my issue? Work on those and cut them off so you don't fall into this trap. A number of years ago, uh, Cheryl and I, I, our company that I worked with, I had done very well. God had blessed it. And as a result, they said, Dave, we're going to send you on a cruise to the Caribbean. Uh, all expenses paid with a few other people from across the country that had great performance. So I was, yay. We'd never been on a cruise before. We'd never been to the Caribbean. It's February in Regina. Anybody been to February, uh, Regina in February? You just got cold thinking about it. You know, it's just... It's like 40 below. We're sitting on the plane. Long time to get off the runway because they have to de-ice it a number of times. It's that cold. We finally land in Dominican Republic where the crew starts. I think, yay, what a great day to go. Cold, miserable weather in Regina. I'm landing in warm, clear skies, 80 degrees, 85 degrees. We were so thrilled to be on this cruise. Well, we'd never cruised before, so we signed up for every shore excursion there was. Like, let's do it. Every shore excursion, we're off there. We rented Jeeps. We catamaran, you name it. Every shore excursion. I don't know what island it was. We stopped that. But we signed up to get on this boat and go to another beach and just relax on the beach. And so we packed up our bag, packed up some books to read and so forth, sunscreen, sunglasses. And this little boat took us out, this beautiful little island, great beach. We got off, had the, you know, the Caribbean music, uh, what's it called? the steel drums. It had the steel drums going. It was just classic, right? We got off, and I just kind of picked up all the stuff. I'm getting off the boat, and I'm, I'm walking along the beach, and all of a sudden, I feel this hand slap right over my eyes. And it's my wife, Cheryl. And she says, don't look. 
We're on a beach with topless people, and these women are not old, and they're not ugly. <laughs> and so, like she said, it's not an exaggeration. So I got, she's got her hand over my eyes, and she says, we're walking to the other side of the beach. Close your eyes, and she leads me to the other side of the beach. And I have to sit down on a rock. <laughs> and I look this direction. <laughs> There's nothing but a little bit of water and the, the, the big island over there. And I have to sit there like this. <laughs> she says, if you want to lie down, you can lie down on your stomach. <laughs> Two hours. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> and then we had to walk back. <laughs> Got on the boat. <laughs> Oh. You know, the good thing is I got a gorgeous wife, so it's not so bad. It was great. It was cool. But <laughs> you get the point. Jesus said, whatever it is, cut it off, remove it so you don't fall into this. And he's, again, he's, he's not saying punish yourself because you made a mistake. Some religions will teach that, you know, oh, you made a mistake, so punish yourself. Jesus took our punishment for sin. I don't have to punish myself for my sin. That's what this is about. This is about being preventative so we don't get hurt. He didn't want to see marriages destroyed. Right after this, he talks about divorce. He knows that lust destroys families, marriages, homes. Have you ever sat in a room, had to counsel somebody, where a little girl tells you that her daddy raped her? Driven by lust because he saw something depicted on an internet site. It's the ugliest hurt. You just, oh. Only Jesus can pick up those pieces and put a life back together again. The Lord was a compassionate shepherd on the sermon here on the mount. He's just saying, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But just because you didn't commit adultery doesn't mean that there's not a deeper issue. I want to go to the deeper issue so you can have the abundant life. Beware of lust. Beware of anger. These things will destroy your homes, your families. It will destroy your life. Be careful. Uh, then he also talks about the danger of the broken word. He goes on to say in verse 33, Again, you've heard the law of Moses says, Do not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you've made before the Lord. But I say to you, don't make any vows. What they were doing was this. They would swear by God. They'd swear by heaven. They'd swear by earth. They'd swear by Jerusalem. And they'd swear by their head. You get kind of the order. Right? You got God, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, my head. So they had various degrees of honesty. If you swore by God, you were completely honest. If you swore by heaven, you're like 80% honest. If you swear by earth, now you're down to 60%. If you swear by Jerusalem, 40%. If you swear by your own head, well, you know, we're not sure what you're saying. As kids, did you ever do this? Somebody said, you know, will you agree to do this? Or your mom asked, your teacher asked you, and, and, or your friend, and behind your back, you, you crossed your fingers. Because if I crossed my fingers, it didn't count. That's kind of what they're doing. They're crossing their fingers. And he said, you know what? Let me simplify this for you. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. That's it. You don't have to swear by something. Your yes is yes, your no is no. That's the way you need to live. It's so much better. You'll have a life of integrity when you live that way. 
And they're also doing things very frivolous. Well, I swear by this, I swear by that. And it's like, well, when are you honest and when, not are, you, when are you not honest? Have you ever had somebody say, well, to tell you the truth, you go like, well, what wasn't the truth? Or honestly, I swear, or this is the honest truth. They've told you something. Now, now, this is the honest truth. We're not so sure about the other part, but now you're getting the truth. Jesus said, you know, do away with that. Just your word is your bond. If you say it, you mean it, you do it. If you say you're going to be there at 8, you're there at 8. If you say you're going to meet somebody at 3, you meet them at 3. If you get stuck in traffic, you give them a call and say, I'm stuck in traffic, sorry. But your word is your bond. You, have, you are a person of integrity. That kind of living is salty. Refusing to live with a lustful life, that's salty, that's light. Refusing to get into anger, that's salty, that's light. That shines, that's noticeable, that adds flavor into any home or into any, any community. Timothy Eaton, you probably know the Eaton name. There are stores across Canada, the Eaton stores, several years ago were bought out. But he started a chain of stores across the country. Famous for his integrity. At his funeral, they said this about Timothy Eaton. He was a man who purposed to live his life according to the Sermon on the Mount. And Timothy Eaton, long before there was welfare and pension, he was already giving it to his employees. He shortened the work hours long before anybody else was doing it. At that time in Toronto, they had diff- nobody would give their prices in the paper. You had to go there and negotiate the prices. Timothy Eaton came along and said, here's our price, what you quote, what we quote you is what you pay. And everybody loved it. He started a catalog business, went across the country. It would be like the eBay of the day. It caught on, and farmers and people across the country were ordering stuff out of his catalog. He helped build three or four churches in his life. When he died, his wife paid for another church to be built called the Timothy Memorial Church. It's a Methodist church, or was, in Toronto. He, he, they said his priorities were church, family, and his store. He lived this amazing life of integrity, but he built it on the Sermon on the Mount. I challenge you this morning, build your life on the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to download free notes from this message or find out more information about Pastor Dave Coop, then we invite you to visit our website at www.coastalchurch.org.